Welcome to Beyond Ethics Class. Today, it's Dr. Fredette Reads Stuff. I've chosen some excerpts from a book I've been reading called Happiness is a Serious Problem by Dennis Prager. I'm going to read you a section of the introduction and the first two very short chapters, and then I will offer my comments. Happiness is a Serious Problem is not a very new book, published in 1998. It is quite applied, but is more full of ideas and arguments than motivational language like some self-help books. If you are interested in the subject of happiness, or if the book sounds useful to you, it should be quite easy to find a copy at a library or bookshop. Mr. Prager begins his introduction by contrasting the subject of happiness with the other subjects he had previously been known for writing and speaking about, such as good and evil, theology, and male-female differences. I will pick up reading in the middle of his introduction. Dennis Prager writes, Why did I neglect happiness? Because I considered these other topics to be more serious and therefore more worthy of my time. I regarded happiness as essentially a light topic, even though I surely wanted to be happy and assumed that everyone else did too. My morality-comes-first attitude and religious background had led me to assume that concern with happiness was somehow a less-than-noble pursuit. People concerned with good and evil, I believed, should not devote much time to writing or speaking about being happy, and the relatively little that I had heard or read on the subject seemed to me either too rosy or too filled with cliches. My attitude toward happiness was entirely wrong. Happiness is not a selfish or frivolous concern. It is as deep and worthy a subject as good and evil. Human beings want to be happy, and they have a right to want to be. Far from being a selfish or ignoble goal, this is one of the distinguishing features of human beings. All right, I'm going to go on to chapter one, which is entitled, Happiness is a Moral Obligation. We tend to think that we owe it to ourselves to be as happy as we can be. And this is true, but happiness is far more than a personal concern. It is also a moral obligation. After one of my talks on happiness, a woman in the audience stood up and said, I only wish my husband had come to this talk. He had chosen to attend a talk on business instead. She explained that he was the unhappy one in their relationship, and that as much as she loved him, it was not easy being married to a person who was unhappy. This woman enabled me to put into words what I had been searching for, the altruistic, in addition to the obvious personal, reasons to take happiness seriously. I told the woman and the audience that she was right. Her husband should have attended the talk because he had a moral obligation to his daily partner in life to be as happy as he could be. Upon a moment's reflection, this becomes obvious. We owe it to our husband or wife, our fellow workers, our children, our friends, indeed to everyone who comes into our lives, to be as happy as we can be. This does not mean acting unreal, and it certainly does not mean refraining from honest and intimate expressions of our feelings to those closest to us. But it does mean that we owe it to others to work on our happiness. We do not enjoy being around others who are usually unhappy. Those who enter our lives feel the same way. Ask a child what it was like to grow up with an unhappy parent, or ask parents what pain they suffer if they have an unhappy child of any age. 
There is a second reason why happiness is a moral obligation. In general, people act more decently when they are happy. The chapter on seeking goodness explains the connection between goodness and happiness at length. It will suffice here to answer this. Do you feel more positively disposed toward other people, and do you want to treat other people better when you are happy or when you are unhappy? There is yet a third reason. I once asked a deeply religious man if he considered himself a truly pious person. He responded that while he aspired to be one, he felt that he fell short in two areas. One of those areas, he said, was his not being a happy enough person to be considered truly pious. His point was that unhappy religious people reflect poorly on their religion and on their creator. He was right. In fact, unhappy religious people pose a real challenge to faith. If their faith is so impressive, why aren't these devoted adherents happy? There are only two possible reasons. Either they are not practicing their faith correctly, or they are practicing their faith correctly, and the religion itself is not conducive to happiness. Most outsiders assume the latter reason. Unhappy religious people should therefore think about how important being happy is, if not for themselves, then for the sake of their religion. Unhappy, let alone angry, religious people provide more persuasive arguments for atheism and secularism than do all the arguments of atheists. That was the end of chapter one. I will move on now to chapter two, which is entitled, Unhappiness is Easy. Happiness Takes Work. I was raised never to take the easy way out. I didn't like this idea when I was a child, and my family sometimes carried it to an extreme. But this principle has served me very well as an adult. The easy way is very often the wrong way. In my late teens, I started applying this attitude to unhappiness, and it has had a permanently positive effect on my life. I was not a particularly happy child, and I also had an early awareness of, and later preoccupation with, human evil and suffering. As a result, happiness did not come easily. Moreover, like most teenagers, I spent part of my teens reveling in my angst. One day, however, the thought occurred to me that being unhappy was easy. In fact, the easy way out. And that it took no courage, effort, or greatness to be unhappy. Anyone could be unhappy. True achievement, I realized, at an early age lay in struggling to be happy. To this day, when I am unhappy, I tell myself that I am taking the easy way out, that happiness is a battle to be waged and not a feeling to be awaited. The notion that happiness must be constantly worked at comes as news, disconcerting news, to many people. They assume that happiness is a feeling and that this feeling comes as a result of good things that happen to them. We therefore have little control over how happy we are, the thinking goes, because we can control neither how we feel nor what happens to us. This book is predicated on the opposite premise. Happiness is largely, though certainly not entirely, determined by us through hard work, most particularly by controlling our nature, and through attaining wisdom, i.e. developing attitudes that enable us not to despair. Everything worthwhile in life is attained through hard work. Happiness is not an exception. All right, that's the end of my read aloud for you today. 
Mr. Prager goes on in the rest of the book to discuss various obstacles to happiness, such as the insatiability of human nature, comparing ourselves with others, the disappointment that comes from setting up images of perfection and unrealistic expectations, and the way that our brains are designed to notice pain more than pleasure and danger more than orderliness, and how to combat these obstacles. He also talks about specific avenues one can take toward a happier life. I've been familiar with Mr. Prager's treatment of the subject of happiness for some time now, and I've found it to be full of practical wisdom for me and my family. Mr. Prager is also a God-fearing man, and as such, his ideas and advice fit well within my own priorities. I picked this book to talk with you about today because I think there are a few really important ideas in here, things that could make or break your current and future relationships and influence. Additionally, there are certain weaknesses of modern or perhaps modern Christian thought that I think Mr. Prager shines some light on. I will attempt to address some of those briefly. I also agree with Mr. Prager that happy people make the world better and unhappy people make it worse. The world could surely use some more happy people, and I very much want my students to be happy. In no particular order, here are a few related thoughts I wish for you to consider. Number one of six. Being miserable doesn't make you deep. We have this cultural idea of the starving artist or the tormented genius. This is perhaps because, statistically, incredible talent and intelligence is often accompanied by equally incredible, difficult personality traits. However, as interesting as such anomalous people may be, their unhappiness is not the thing that makes them amazing. Even if a young lady or young man finds your moody demeanor intriguing, it is not going to play in your favor when the storms of life or the maintenance of cohabitation hits your relationship. I've occasionally noticed this tendency to need to project negativity in order to be perceived as authentic or spiritual in something like a church small group context, when prayer request time might become a how selfish and worthless are you competition. But shall we continue in sin so that grace may abound? One should not be feeling the need to marinate in negativity or amplify misery in order to be perceived as authentic. Point number two. The pursuit of happiness is not selfish. On the contrary, becoming a happier person is an act of love toward everyone around you. It is true that life is not all about your experience and your happiness. Serving God, for instance, requires you to hold certain values above your own comfort. Maintaining an important human relationship requires the same thing. However, in doing a good deed... You don't get extra morality points just because you made a miserable sacrifice of yourself or your happiness. As an aside, I think that unselfishness itself is a frustrating and destructive way of defining goodness or morality. I could go on, but I will save it for another day. Number three. Your happiness level is at least partially under your control. There are lots of things about the world around you that you will never be able to influence. However, you do have tools at your disposal to influence your happiness. History, as well as our own families and friends, give us examples of people who have experienced far worse sufferings than we have, but yet are characterized by thankfulness, kindness, and cheerfulness. Another example, which I've heard Mr. Prager use, of how at least your disposition is under your control, is how easy it is for you to be in the middle of a fight with someone, 
yet greet the plumber who comes to your door with cheerful friendliness. Number four. Sometimes in church land, people make a distinction between happiness and joy, where happiness is a fleeting feeling based on circumstances, and joy is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is independent of circumstance. Obviously, Mr. Prager is operating with a broader definition of happiness. My feeling on this difference of definition is that both are a bit arbitrary, and both might be helpful to someone in some situation. I do think that Mr. Prager's broader take on happiness is truer to our English language usage. Also, meaningful happiness or joy, in my experience, is difficult to segment quite as cleanly as is sometimes assumed in the happiness versus joy framework. I think that Mr. Prager would agree that meaningful happiness or joy does have to function somewhat independently from circumstances and has a lot to do with our belief and hope in God. Number five, being honest and authentic and acknowledging pain and difficulty is not mutually exclusive with valuing and building happiness. As Mr. Prager discusses in a later chapter, more openness with others in general could be helpful to happiness because intimate friendships are important to human beings. Also, openness prevents many unrealistic personal comparisons because the reality of another's burden helps you to have a broader perspective on your own. Honesty and authenticity with close friends and family is constructive, while nurturing a bad mood is not. Painful circumstances have to be experienced, hopefully in community with those who love you, but improving your happiness in the longer term should still be a goal. Number six, happiness and gratitude go together. Mr. Prager did not address this in the excerpt I read to you, but being consciously grateful for your blessings is a huge part of being happy, especially when we can be thankful not only to other people, but also to God, the creator and redeemer. The bit of the book that I read to you was not about specific ways to be happier. It just made the case for why you should try. However, If you accept the challenge to work on your own happiness and want to make a start right away, I would suggest starting with gratitude. Write letters of gratitude to people who have meant a lot to you. Jot down a few things you are thankful for each day or week in your calendar or on a sticky note. Pray prayers of thanksgiving every day for both temporal and spiritual blessings. That's the end of my comments on the beginning sections of Happiness is a Serious Problem, by Dennis Prager. I hope that you'll choose to courageously pursue happiness as the founding fathers of our country dreamed for you. I pray that your pursuit will lead you deeper into the good and the meaningful, doing more of what you were created to do. Thanks for joining me today. Until next time.